This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Good morning to you. Good afternoon to me. Good evening to everyone. Good evening, you see. (laughs) Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Dr. Coleman. Uh, You know it. Yeah, I was a little nervous there for a minute because it's always my goal to not have to edit anything since I do the editing of these Friday episodes myself and uh, I don't have Ryan Ferguson who does phenomenal work on the uh, regular Monday episodes. So I always want to just start in as soon as you answer, just like dive right in. But it's always a, a you know, there's always a chance that there'll be an awkward pause. So well done. Oh, man. And, and there's always a chance that I'll respond to whatever your intro is. In an awkward way. Well, that's and a they, that's a guarantee. That's not a chance. <laughs> and by the way, because a lot a lot of your listeners don't appreciate this, man. I've I've traveled sometimes for speaking engagements, and I've had people come up to me, and th- th- they were shocked to know that we record these interviews spontaneously with minimum prep. We Usually, just sort of no dive, prep. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were surprised to know that that we just do these things, and they're bam up on social media just minutes afterwards. Yeah. I mean, we truly usually one o'clock Eastern every Friday, we start recording. We are done by two and usually by two 30, the blog post and the episode is up. Cause all I do is I just pop it into audacity. I add the intro and outro music. I save the file and I upload it to SoundCloud and then just really quickly type in some show notes on the, on the blog post and and pop it up there. And it's fun because it's as close to live as you can get. I'm sure there's software that would let us do this live, but um, I kind of like having the ability to sort of, you know, package it as a regular episode, but to really do it like right on the spot every Friday. So yeah, none of these are pre-recorded. They are happening right before they're released. So, um, Hey, so, so next time you edit these, can you put a little bit more like bass in my voice just so I can have I've a little tried. I've tried. Mac- I've maxed it out. And uh, <laughs> it just, I even tried the um, correct for Ben Carsonitis uh, effect. <laughs> and uh, it just, if I didn't, people don't realize that if I did nothing to your voice, it would sound, it would sound like this. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited today to talk about ideas. Um, all right. So TK, what is the... What's the smallest amount of money you have paid for the biggest quality of life improvement? The smallest amount of money? Oh, that that's easy, man, for books. I mean, most I mean, I've gotten a ton of books from used bookstores and stuff like that for 25 cents, 50 cents, and I've read books that have literally changed my whole life trajectory for under a dollar, man. Isn't that an amazing like when you think about how we're all sort of striving Oh, if I could get a pay raise and bump my salary up by, you know, 5,000 a year, and then I'll have a couple hundred extra each month. And then that will let me, you know, get the upgraded package of direct TV or, you know, uh, buy a little, a little bit nicer meat at the grocery store every week or whatever, some small thing you're trying to eke out an improvement in quality of life. And sometimes it's things you would never think of like 29 bucks on a book, $8 on a book, $2 on a book that what it can do to transform your mind can be a greater quality of life improvement than any new, you know, $100 a month expense or, or whatever. I, I'm just, the reason I thought of this, there is some context. So I just got a new car uh, that I'm leasing and it's 200 bucks a month, like, you know, pretty much as, as cheap as I could get. 
Um, and I just got it yesterday and driving it and, and I don't care about cars. Like I'm just like super bothered by the fact that I have to buy one and maintain one or, you know, lease. Well, that's why I lease it. I don't like to have to maintain it and all that stuff. I just want to get from point A to point B. I don't care what it looks like. Anything else it just has to work and get me there. But I was amazed driving it yesterday and today. I just love being in this thing. It's so nice. It's got that new car smell. Of course, it's just so much nicer than my now 14 year old Saturn with 200,000 miles on it that I just traded in. That was like starting to need coolant added all the time. It was it just sort of like, I didn't think about it. I didn't notice it until I got this new one. The quality of life enhancement of getting in this car that I love to get in and that I know I have no worries about whether the AC is going to work well enough, whether it's going to, it's just nice. It gets me there. I can pick people up in it. I don't need to worry, whatever. The quality of life improvement is so high. And I was thinking about it for 200 bucks a month. You know, it's the kind of thing where that's, that's 2,400 bucks a year. That's like cheaper than a little, weekend getaway to the Bahamas or a cruise with your wife that you might take for a week. And a lot of times you think, how do I improve my quality of life and enjoy life? And you save up and you scrimp to be able to do like some short-term vacation. And when you think about it, there's often ways that you can improve your quality of life dramatically more because that fades. You go, you have fun for a week, you have some memories and pictures, and then you're back and you almost have to play catch up on both ends of it. And so it doesn't really improve your cumulative quality of life. It's a one-time shot of, of fun. Um, but when you think about the cumulative effect of every day, every single time I get in my car, I'm 30% happier than when I used to get in my car. And I get in my car a lot. And that's like we've talked about with living someplace, the things you don't think about, the fact that when I drive from my house to the grocery store, the drive is pretty what that does to my happiness. And it's just interesting the ways that we spend money. I mean, like you, you don't usually think like, oh, I gotta be cheap. I don't wanna get a new car as long as I can't, it can help it. Well, why not? Cause I wanna save up so I can have a nice vacation. Well, if you think about it, like oftentimes the things that actually improve our quality of life can be some of these expenditures that are sometimes really small um, that we don't think about because they, they truly affect every single day, you know, um, like, Heather and I have gone without Netflix at various times. And then I always realize this is so stupid. It's like nine bucks, 12 bucks a month. And when we don't have it, there are a lot of evenings, kids are in bed, we can't go anywhere where we want to do something. And it's like, uh, we're bored. So maybe we'll run to the store and like get a bottle of wine for 12 bucks or whatever. You do that a couple times a month and you're already spending more and you're not really like versus just having Netflix, the quality of life because we have kids. So we're home early every night. We watch stuff a lot. The quality of life is just, so high for such a small amount. It's just something I was thinking about yesterday and today. Oh man, well, so a couple of things on that. I mean, a lot of the research coming out of projects like the Flow Genome Project is that we, we tend to be more productive and creative when we are in that flow state, when, when, when our happiness or our well-being, our, our sense of emotional stability, et cetera, is less interfered with by all of these distractive the distracting elements, you know, that just kind of throw us off and and that that require a lot of maintenance. And so the paradoxical thing about this is we often cut corners and say, ah, I'll just do this myself because I don't want to spend the money or, oh, I'll just put up with this old car that requires a lot of maintenance because I don't want to spend the money. But if you spend the money and you make that investment in your well-being, 
there's so many things you don't have to think about and so many emotions you don't have to feel anymore. And there's a lot of creativity and productivity that comes out of that. You write better, you think more clearly, you speak better, you have more enthusiasm when you come to work, and you often find that you make that money up in spades as, as a result of the improvements in your workflow. I, I think another area where this affects us is, is with time. Um, you know, so most people are under the impression that what they need because they work, you know, they, they hate their job so much. What they need is more vacation time. I think there are a lot of people out there who think they need more vacation time, but what they actually need is to put like an extra hour of work into their, their job every day. And I know that sounds crazy, but one of the reasons why people think they need so much, so much vacation time is because they're stressed out by a bunch of inefficiencies at their job. They're stressed out by 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 um, anxieties that are caused by their own incompetence or, or, or their inability. Or they're and drained when they're not at work, and so their their free time is not even quality free time. Yep, yep, ab absolutely. And it's amazing how making an investment that seems like a sacrifice at first. I'm going to spend extra time improving my problem solving skills in relation to this creative challenge I'm having at work will actually make you feel less of a need to be away from work. Because when you go there, you enjoy it and you're just not uh, anxious and stressed all the time. You know, so, one one yeah. more thought on this topic of quality of life improvements that you can get big returns for small amounts before we because we have several things to touch on and several listener questions I'm, I'm excited about getting to. But, you know, as a in the workplace I think this is so much more powerful than many people realize, especially if you're a business owner to think about. Um, I remember, TK, when you st first started working with Praxis um, very early on, and uh, I don't think you were getting paid. You know, you were, we were paying you to travel and do some speaking and you were doing some stuff just like, you know, before anybody was getting paid, we were just trying to build this thing. And I remember you had this crappy laptop that was like falling apart and <laughs> it just gave you problems all the time. Yep. And I said, hey, man. Praxis will get you a laptop. Just get one. Just get one that's good. And you're like, oh, okay, so you get to get one that meets your needs. It's like whatever, $400, $500, $600. And I'm like, dude, just get a freaking awesome laptop. I don't care if it's $1,000. And you're yeah, like, you oh, actually, no, no, that's not necessary. You actually begged me to buy an expensive yeah, one. Yeah, I begged you to buy the ZenBook that I have. And you're like, no, 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 no. And so you got a lower quality one. And then eventually later you needed to get a new one. But the reason I did that was because I found from my previous job and from just other things and observing my own life personally, you're like, oh, well, I'll get this $600 laptop. It will do everything I need. But if you go up and just spend another $400 and get a $1,000 laptop, like my Asus ZenBook, I just love. It is such a delight. I love the way it feels. I love opening it. I love typing on it. I like just want to use it all the time. It actually gives me pleasure just to use it. And so the happiness I get the increase in productivity, the just the the enjoyment, it is so worth. You know, I'm, I've had this thing for like four years now. It is so worth that a hundred bucks a year to have the enjoyment that I get and the reliability and quality. And I think as an employer, I've noticed a lot of places will think things like, "Oh, well, our employees, we got you know whatever, 10, 20 employees, five employees. They just need like a basic laptop that does. We don't need to get them some fancy tool." And so they're kind of stingy about expenses or somebody's like, can I get it? Will you pay for my cell phone since I use it for work all the time? And it's like, you know, 70 bucks a month. No, 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 we don't do that. That's silly. You can do that. And it's not necessary. And you think about that 70 bucks a month, a couple hundred bucks for a laptop or like events. Hey, can I go to this conference and will work pay for it? And it's like kind of fun, a little bit of work, but a lot of play. And you're as an employer, you're like, that just sounds frivolous. We don't need to. That's and it's like the 500, a thousand bucks you would spring for that. 
does more for morale in most cases than a $5,000 raise in salary. Not only because taxes take away some of it, whatever, but I know people who work at a place, maybe they make 35K, but the place is just ridiculously generous. Hey, whatever tools you need, just buy them. We'll cover it. You need a, a MacBook, buy it. 1500 bucks, fine. You're going to go to this event and it's $700, go for it. And they're always bragging about where they work. They love it. They're like, oh, it's awesome. Oh, work is sending me there. Oh yeah, I get to go to Vegas for a conference. Oh, I have this sweet laptop. Work just bought it for me as soon as I started. And even though you're like an entry level employee with a low salary, you feel like you're being treated like a king. And to the employer, that's a couple thousand dollars a year. And instead, you you would think as an employer, well, you know, they don't need all that stuff, but if they do well, I'll give them a raise and they'll get paid 40K. I guarantee you in the happiness factor, nine times out of 10, the employee is going to feel more excited about working for you. If you're generous about tools and conferences and you're not stingy about expenses, and you're less apt to focus on direct salary compensation as a way to, to reward employees. It's just an interesting thing that I've noticed, just feeling like you never have to stress about your tools and you're not worried about stinginess. You're gonna end up spending less for more happiness. And that's a word of wisdom to employers and you know startup entrepreneurs as well. Sometimes you're in a position where you don't have the ability to really compensate people as much as you would like, it's amazing how hard people will work for you, go to bat for you, advocate for you, if you do those intangible kinds of things, make them feel like they're a part of the team, make them feel valued, appreciated, special, et cetera. Oh, it's amazing, and people will brag about, hey, I just got this internship, it's unpaid, but on day one, they bought me a brand new laptop. And it's like, and they're so pumped, and it's like, yeah, for a three-month internship, you buy a laptop for a thousand bucks or 800 bucks or whatever, um, that's a great deal, and that's probably way better than I got this internship and I get paid 250 bucks a month. You know, it's like, even though the cost is the same, there's just a mindset thing there. Okay. Um, yep. so speaking of my new car, when I was there at the leasing office, which by the way, d dealerships are just hell on earth. Um, they're just awful. No matter how much you've done ahead of time online, you have to sit for like 19 hours and they try to starve you and, you know, upcharge you $2. For <laughs> anyway, so I'm in there with the finance guy signing like 15 million papers. And this guy said something that just made me really, really sad. And I know you've talked about this sort of back to school mentality a lot. He goes, yeah, I've got a five-year-old son. You know, he's just a ball of energy from sunup to sundown all day. He's wild. He's crazy. It's a lot of fun, but he's just a curious, you know, on the move. He goes, but he just started school. This kid's five years old, keep in mind. He just started school. So now, he, you know, he gets up super early and to, to get to school. And then when he gets home, he sits at the dinner table the whole time without getting up and running around. And he's eating seconds and thirds because he's so hungry because he hates the food at school so much. And then he does his homework. He's five and he has homework. By the time he's done with his homework, he actually is asking my wife, can I go to bed now? Because he's so exhausted. He hates school and he gets tired from it. He hates the food. So he's like totally not running around crazy and destructive anymore. And he goes, so school's really working for him. And he laughed. And I was oh, just man. like, I was just heartbroken. I'm thinking of this five-year-old kid who's being forced to wake up before he's ready, go to school that he hates, be starving all day long because he hates the school lunch, get mm -hmm. home, and his normal, chipper, wild, energy-filled self, which a, which a five-year-old boy you know should be exploring the world and getting bumps and bruises, is just sapped, and he's sitting there cramming food in his mouth because he's been hungry all day, doing homework, and then he's like, can I please go to bed? Cause I'm so tired. Like that's just, 
so sad to me. The kid's only five and he's already had like the zest for life taken out of him after one week of school. That might sound dramatic and I, I probably wouldn't have used to see it that way, but oh my gosh, now that I have my own kids and they're unschooled and stuff, the thought of doing that to them just breaks my heart. And the logic behind that is, well, this kid's got to get prepared for the real world. We got to get this kid in a in a you know a good school that's going to prepare him from for high school, which will prepare him to get into a good college. It's competitive, Isaac. It's competitive. You got to start early, man. I mean, some kids are out of contention for Ivy League school by the time they're in eighth grade. It's competitive, so we got to work them. We got to prepare them for adult life. Mm. I mean, the guy talking to me clearly did not enjoy his job. <laughs> job based on the mood I was getting. It just felt, it just really, something about it broke my heart. And you see that with a lot of back to school stuff with people being like, oh, little Joey is going to school for the first time. He cried and cried for the first three days that we dropped him off. But, um, you know, and it's like, dude, that's like slightly traumatic. I don't want to over dramatize it. Kids are resilient, but you know, they, I don't, it's just, that's just horrible. Would you would you want to work at a place that you cried every day you had to go to and you had to suffer through it and they didn't let you go to the bathroom without permission and you had no access to food and breaks on your own time and you were completely, you had no choice over, I mean, we would tell people that worked at a job like that, quit. That sounds horrible, you know, but we want to stick kids through it for however many years. I mean, anyway. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, but. Oh, oh man. I mean, I feel like we could go on all day about this and I almost hope we do. But this isn't in the same category of you taking your child with you to the shopping mall and they cry when you don't buy them every single toy on the shelf they want. You know, this isn't this isn't us, you know, reacting to, oh, your poor little baby's crying and you're just going to let them do something that doesn't feel entirely comfortable. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, not, it's, it's not the denial of pleasure. It's not like they want something that so, they think someone else owes them and you're not giving it to them. That's, you know, that's life. But this is like the opposite. It's putting them in a situation where they have to suffer against their will. Oh, a absolutely. It makes me think of this uh, comic I saw someone share on Facebook the other, other day where the first little clip has a, a daughter riding on her father's back and she says, I wonder why some clouds are pink. And he says, well, let's find out. And they're, they're looking up a little book in the next scene. And she goes, I wonder what that word is. And he's like, hmm, let's find out. And then, you know, they're lying on the ground and there's a little butt crawling and she goes, Ooh, daddy, I wonder how many legs it has. And he says, well, let's count and see. And then she goes, I wonder where that butterfly is going. And, and then all of a sudden he goes, okay, time for school. And, and you see her standing outside of the school with her backpack on and a sad face. And she goes, but I want to keep learning. <laughs> you know, now, now maybe the average kid wouldn't use the word learning, but they would use a word that I know you and I both associate with learning. And I believe rightfully so. And that is, but I want to keep playing. Mm. I want to keep playing. And, and, and that is the space where children not only discover what they love and what they're uniquely good at, but that's actually the context where they remember the things they learn. That's the context where they do learn the value of things like team, like uh, teamwork or, or discipline. It, it, by the way, it, it amazes me that one of the, the arguments that people make for having children do this kind of stuff is that they learn discipline as if discipline is something that is inherently valuable and it's something that you're not going to naturally learn simply by going after things you genuinely care about. I mean, we live in a world that doesn't go out of its way to give us everything that we want. And if you want something in life, 
Reality itself will require you to make certain sacrifices, to exercise discipline in order to get what you want. The best context to learn discipline is the only context where it matters, a goal-oriented context where you're doing something that you want to do. You pick the game. You pick the assignment. You pick the agenda. You pick the goal. That's the most important thing. It's not completing assignments. It's picking what the assignment is and why we're doing it. And, 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 And we've totally lost this, and we just sort of feel like, oh, tough up, little Johnny. Get in there. Um, I'm yeah. definitely taking, you know, go like, ahead. like there's nothing built into the world and the incentives of society in the market that will that will help that will reward you for doing things that are you know beneficial. Like if you don't have someone externally forcing you arbitrarily, you will never do anything that's like for your own good, which is just absurd and contrary to what we observe. I mean, this is a theme that comes up in this show all the time. Tim Shermack's episode just on Monday, which is phenomenal. There's like five examples in there in his story where he didn't know anything about something and he had a client that he wanted to sell to. So he like bought a book and learned it in just hours. Or, you know, have you ever heard some successful creator or entrepreneur or artist or somebody say, yeah, you know, my big breakthrough, the the way that I mastered this and wrote my book or created my movie or started my business was I just kept following all the rules in the classroom I was in. And then boom, I had this business. Every time it's something like, I got obsessed with this problem and so I stayed up all night teaching myself how to code or I mean it's what kids do with video games they're super disciplined you know I remember my brother used to set his alarm for like 4:45 every morning and then he would wake me up and we would go down into the basement and we'd use one of those little space heaters and have an afghan on because it was so cold in Michigan in the winter in the basement and we would play Aces Over Europe on the computer. He would mostly play and I would watch and just like cheer him on. I don't know why I would get up that early just to sit and watch my little brother. And he'd be like, occasionally like, do you want to play? And I'd be like, no, go ahead. <laughs> but he was so disciplined about it. And he'd play it until about eight o'clock or seven o'clock when it was like, my mom's like, okay, breakfast time and now whatever. Now my mom had tried tons of different schedules over the years of like, we're going to get up early. We're going to exercise. We're going to, and we always resisted them. And we always, they eventually broke down because we were all like, none of us wanted to do it. And she couldn't stick with it, you know, force us to. But when we wanted to beat that game, we were, we were forcing ourselves to get up, you know, every morning at like 5 a.m. or earlier and play it, you know, just like religiously. Um, when you have a goal, you will discipline yourself when it's something meaningful to you. You don't need to, to impose that. Um, and, and all the things you got to learn playing that game. It's not just, okay, fine, you figured out how to play one video game. Oh, no, 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 no. You learned a lot of things about strategy, about creative thinking. I mean, there are all sorts of things, skills you got to learn to do that. But, you know, this is also true just, you know, in everyday adult life, even if you're not a kid playing video games or you're not a, a celebrity or a startup entrepreneur, it, it's like, OK, so for instance, um, I had some some audios that I wanted to edit and I had to figure it out. And I, and I use the program you use Audacity and I'm trying all these different things and I end up spending like three or four hours on it. And my wife tells me, man, you're really disciplined with that. And it had never occurred to me that I was being disciplined, although it, my behavior matched the, de- the definition. It's just that I had a, had a goal. And in order to get what I selfishly wanted, I had to figure out this editing stuff and I had to stick with it until I got it. And I know a ton of stuff about how to work audacity. I know the terminology. I know what the different effects are, but it's not because I set out to learn it because someone told me it was important. It's because I had something that I needed to create because that was important to me. And, and, you know, I mean, that's how all learning is done. When people remember that's when people remember and retain 
That's the real reason why. You can force someone to do something and they'll learn it enough to pass the test, but it's only when they choose it that they actually retain it and that they use use it in a way that that is creative and involves the making of interesting connections. Yeah, one good problem is better than a semester long class. Actually, go to go to the Praxis blog and pull up uh, listeners um, a post a couple days ago by Derek McGill. It's real short, called uh, "The Student versus the Entrepreneur Approach to Learning," and it hits on this beautifully. Um, hey, hey Zeke, last thing, man, because because I just want to uh, talk about the flip side of this real quick. How how it starts with day one with the kid crying and the parents sort of letting them go. And then it ends with the graduation ceremony where the parent is so proud. Oh, my gosh, my baby just graduated eighth grade, high school, college. And that's cool. Go ahead and feel proud. I'm not mocking that. But that part makes me sad because I know that for the overwhelming majority of kids, that is literally going to be the most pride that their parents and peers ever express in them. They're never going to get that much love again. Their, their high school graduation or college graduation is literally the peak of how much they'll be celebrated in this life. And I think that's sad because it really should be yeah, the valley. You, you, you know? Yeah, you floated downstream for you know 12 years. I'm so, ex- <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, two more quick things before we take a bunch. We got a bunch of good questions. Um, I had a friend send me a resume a couple of days ago and he said, Hey, this is a friend of mine. He's a really hard worker, great guy. He's looking for work. Um, you know, do you know anybody you could pass this on to? And this resume was awful. It was like two pages, just text, like bullet points and text, like completely edge to edge. And it was just full of descriptive stuff of like, I did this, I studied this, I was here, like activities and titles. And so I emailed back pretty harshly <laughs> and, uh, and was like, look, don't, don't tell me what you did. Show me some outcomes. Even if you're a waiter, you know, instead of saying I waited tables, say during my shift, you know, tips were up 15% or whatever. Give me some outcomes, make it one page, ha- make it a pitch deck. Here's a link to a post about pitch decks, you know, make it some visual, get to the point. I need to know who you are quickly, et cetera. And actually the guy did, I mean, he turned around just a beautiful, um, version too immediately within like a day or two, which was just awesome. So it was, it was first insight I had was how interesting it was that this guy was like three, four years out of college that he had gone all this time. And all it took was like one quick email with a couple of tips. And then he spent a couple hours fixing it. And his resume went from worse than average and average resumes are totally forgettable anyway, to a one page visual, almost pitch deck thing that I forwarded it to a CEO who's done tons of hiring. And he goes, this is the best resume I've ever seen. That literally took one hour or two hours. And I was just shocked that no one had ever like presented this concept before to this guy, you know, and like he took it so well and responded. But the other thing though, the the point that I made to him when I said, look, I'm not even going to pass this resume along. I told my friend this about, about this guy's resume. I said, for this reason, because when you have a really long, this is like having an email, an ask email where you're asking someone to do something, speak at an event, do something for you, whatever. And it's really long and full of text. I said, this guy's basically asking for a paycheck before he has created any value or any proof of his ability to create value. My friend's like, what do you mean asking for a paycheck? I said, to read through this two-page resume line by line and actually decipher and understand what it is, the amount of time and mental energy it takes, that's like asking some busy CEO, that's like $100 worth of their opportunity cost just to decipher this thing. So you're saying, here, bear this huge cost of reading through this wall of text and deciphering what I'm trying to say and and propose to you, 
then we'll find out if I'm a good fit. And I'm like, that's just totally backwards. You can't ask for them to spend resources on you before you've created value. Go the other way. Present them with something that actually creates value for them that says, wow, I've never seen a resume like this that gives them ideas or give them a value proposition. Create value for them in some way first before you ask anything of them. And I think understanding just people's time and the value of their time and the mental resources they have to devote will really help put you in a mindset. You should always ask yourself, if you're sending a resume, an email ask or anything like that, am I basically asking this person to pay me in time and mental energy before I've created any value for them? How hard, how much work is it for them to dissect this email? You know, when someone emails me to do a speaking engagement and if they say, hey, an amazing event in this place at this date, X number of attendees that I think would be awesome, let me know if you're up for it. Or, you know, just something that basic. I'm like, interesting. They've tried to tell me that this could be valuable for me and it's really quick and it costs me almost nothing to read that email. So I'll respond, yeah, give me more details um, or whatever versus someone trying to convey everything in the first email. Dear Mr. Morehouse, we are running an event. You know, my name is so-and-so. Our organization has been around for six months and we do the following things. Here's our mission statement. Here's our website. We're creating this event. The purpose of the event is boom, 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 boom. We're trying to ask speakers that fit the following criteria to get people who have the following interests to give talks about blah, 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 blah. The event will be this and this. You could either do a breakout, a boom, 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 boom. Are you interested? I'm like, I can't even, you're asking me to, to give you so much time before, you know, before you give me details, make, make me want to ask for the details, you know, intrigue me with a pitch. Hey, I've got an amazing event coming up that I think you would love and they would love you. I've heard your talks that are amazing. Oh, I thank you. I'm flattered. Now you've created some value for me. I feel good about myself. Would you be interested? Now I can ask you for more. Just a, just a little, a little insight. And, and, and by the way, this is the kind of stuff that we already kind of know and we already kind of apply it, but we just sort of forget it when it comes to professional life, it reminds me of my experience in like high school acting class where um, a person gets up in front of the class to read from a script and all of a sudden an accent comes out of nowhere and it has nothing to do with what they're saying. And my theater teacher was like, well, why are you speaking in an accent? And, 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 and that person realized that they have an acting voice that they just naturally use when they're <laughs> acting and, and, and their own voice is fine. What they already can do is perfect, but they go into their acting voice. And I feel like in a similar way, we have a professional voice that we think we need to speak in and it's all wrong. So think about how you act when you go to meet people, when you try to get a date, when you try to make friends with someone, do you give them a resume? Do you give them an hour long presentation of who you are? Do you give them your life story or do you start with saying something that is designed to capture interest and lead to further discussion? So we already know it. You just kind of got to drop the bad professional habits and apply what you already know to your career. Hey, let's get to some listener questions. You ready? I'm ready, man. Don't forget, I, I posted something on my Facebook page as well. So make sure we're taking a look at that. I got already some saw it. over there. Already saw All right. It. All right, brother. I All think right. I got everything that was submitted by one o'clock or by one ten actually when we started. So, um, Anything after that, you know, we'll probably miss. But you ready? Here we go. I'm ready. All right. So some of these came in through the website, uh, IsaacMorehouse.com. Some of them came in through Facebook. TK and I both posted. Georgia Houghton asks, how did you become a successful entrepreneur? Um, well, it's completely subjective whether or not uh, TK or I are successful entrepreneurs. I, I guess it de depends on whose definition of success. Um I feel like I am being successful at 
becoming or being an entrepreneur right now. It's, I think it's a, a process. It's not like you reach a plateau where now you are a successful entrepreneur. I think being a successful entrepreneur means being actively uh, entrepreneuring. <laughs> it means it's like being a writer, being a yeah. successful writer means you're writing regularly and you're putting your stuff out there. So um, I'll tell you for me, Georgia, you know, before I had launched Praxis, I was maybe somewhat entrepreneurial as like a worker, as a thinker. I was kind of thinking of some new stuff here and there and doing some stuff, but I was not an entrepreneur. I would not have used that word to describe myself. Um, here's how I think I got Praxis off the ground and and we, uh, I don't want to say I, the, the, the whole team, everybody involved, and we have been able to continue to grow it one thing each day. That's truly been the trick for me because I get overwhelmed really easy. I need simplicity. I need things. I am such a minimalist in thought, in action, in possessions, in everything. I just, I want to minimize as quickly and as much as possible. Delete, shred, destroy is one of my favorite mantras. And so for me, it was, especially early on, now this comes easier, it's, it's habituated, but okay, I've got this idea for this company. What do I do? Well, there's a million things I can do. It's too overwhelming. And even picking which one's most important is too overwhelming. Like buying a URL and having a logo is not the most important thing at all. But I didn't care. It was one of the first things that came to mind. I just needed to do something. So I just gave myself a rule because I was doing this bootstrapping it on the side. As long as I do one thing each day, every day, seven days a week to move closer to the goal of launching Praxis, I'm okay. Now I'm an entrepreneur because I'm entrepreneuring <laughs> because I'm doing something. It's just like, if you want to be a writer, write every day. Now you are a writer because you're writing and your writing will get better and maybe it will get famous, but it can't do any of that if you're not just doing it every day. So for me, it was that one thing every day. And I still, to this day, I have that. I have a, I have a spreadsheet where I mark off. Did I do one thing to grow Praxis every single day, seven days a week? Some days it literally only is one thing. You know, I, I tweet something, you know, apply today because that's, uh, that's all I've got. It's a Sunday. I'm with my kids, whatever. Other days it's all day. I'm doing a ton of stuff. But as long as you're doing one thing each day, I think that is such a powerful approach to becoming successful at anything you do. And a quick little plug, we have a fun, exciting little announcement about a one thing each day tool uh, that we'll be um, coming up with pretty soon here. But TK, do you have any additional thoughts on how did you become a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, so first, I got clear with myself from day one on what my personal definition of success is. I think the the I most still don't know what mine is, by the way. <laughs> well, I think mine is sufficiently general to accommodate, you know, a lot of different phases and changes. But I, I truly do think the most important part of success is that you define success on your own terms because you will always be a failure to somebody else. I don't care what you achieve. There's always gonna be somebody out there who's looking at you going, I'm not impressed. So you gotta define success on your own terms and I've always had the audacity to do that. The second thing for me is I've always made everything I've done an extension of my personal development. So I'm always interested in finding more ways to feel alive, to get the most out of life, to feel intoxicated by existence itself. And everything that I do, I'm very clear with myself on how it serves that overarching purpose. Even if that thing doesn't, you know, uh, start out as, as really fun or easy to do. And the third thing is I always do stuff that I believe in. So I'm not doing practice for the money. And I know entrepreneurship ultimately does involve that, but I'm not doing it for the money. Everything I've done, it's something that I was not only willing to do for free, 
But in the earliest stages, I actually did do for free. And in, in many cases beyond that, I paid to do it. Right. So I, I think when you believe in something, a lot of people may say work hard, you know, put a lot of hours in. But when you believe in something, you, you'll do what you need to do in order to make it happen. Even if you have off days, even if sometimes you, you know, you're not your best, you'll ultimately come through for, for the things that you truly believe in. So okay. that, those would be my things. I I haven't known how to tell you this. I think this is probably as good a way to do it as any. But um, <laughs> like uh, like Milton in Office Space, you actually have not been receiving a paycheck for the last six months, but nobody <laughs> nobody bothered to tell you. And since you're just like so lost in books, you didn't even notice. Um, so you still are. That's awesome. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Francisco Gonzalez asks, how radical are you really? Do you wear white after Labor Day? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Like, how radical are you really? What is that in contrast to? Yeah, like, are you living out those you. Facebook statuses yeah, no, or he, what? He wants to know, you know, if I'm really radical or if you're really radical, we would wear white after Labor Day. That's the test. Uh, Francisco, <laughs> I have basically no fashion sense. Does a white t-shirt count? I, I have a couple white t-shirts and I wear those all the time. Actually, I don't even know when Labor Day is. I always get Labor Day and Memorial Day mixed up. Is Labor Day the one that just happened? Where everybody Labor Day like, is the one that just happened. Yeah, yeah, where like everything shuts down on Monday for no reason. Yeah, and everybody looks at you like a raging workaholic if you decide to do something. It's productive. so weird. I always feel like Ebenezer Scrooge, like a poor <laughs> yeah. excuse for picking a man's pocket every 31st of December. 25th of December. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, I wear uh, basically t-shirts and jeans or shorts. Um, I wish I could wear jorts, but my wife doesn't want me to. Uh, pretty much all the time. TK, do you have any like fashion rules for yourself besides look like an old man? <laughs> That's the only rule, dude. <laughs> and, and grow older as fast as I can. When, when I when I become an old man and I'm I'm on my way, I will I will for the first time in my life be able to get away with everything that I am. <laughs> Finally, I can be me. <laughs> right. <sighs> I don't want to go out. I don't want to talk to people. I just want to read on a Saturday night. I'm I'm getting there, man. I'll never forget when you came back from uh, uh, South Africa and you're like, dude, the best thing about this trip is that everybody will just get off me about traveling internationally. There, I did it. Dude. I didn't care. I'm home. I'm never going to – if I never leave the country again, I'll be happy. Stop talking dude. about travel. <laughs> I'm, I'm never leaving the country again. I've, I've been to Europe, been to, South, been to South Africa. It's over. Get out of my face. <laughs> Um, Zach Slayback, our good friend and colleague asks, what's the best way to start a new routine? That's a great question. TK. Man. Uh, so I, I guess I'll give three elements, uh, philosophy, sustainability and accountability. That's kind of my, my three pronged approach. Did you philosophy for this question or did you just have three <laughs> rhyming, you know, concepts already at hand? So I, I truly think there's something that comes with being black that makes you more prone to to rhyme. You know, when you talk about this kind of stuff, you know, uh, it's adaptability, sustainability. I can't speak for all black people, but I, but I know for me, I'm more impressed if you say something that rhymes. Like if you say, <laughs> TK, you got to do your work. It's like, OK, I get that. But if you're like, TK, if you don't want to be a jerk, you got to do your work. I'm like, oh, man, let me get on <laughs> <laughs> okay, so sorry. Go ahead. So philosophy, man. I mean, basically start with why. Zach, I know you, my brother. I know that's cheesy, but 
I mean, I think more important than the new routine is why you're doing it. Are you doing it because you feel like you ought to be the person who's always starting new routines or are you doing it because there's something that you're sincerely interested in and you want to find a way to make it fit into your lifestyle, overcoming the creative challenges that are involved in that? I think you're far more likely to start new routines if you just do stuff that you like, only start routines for you. Secondly, sustainability, whatever you do. I think one of the one of the uh, main things, one of the main reasons why people fail at starting new routines or keeping them going is because they think too ambitiously. I think you got to you got to do things that you're capable of doing on the worst day of the week. So when you start something, don't think in terms of, yeah, running five miles is great. I mean, sure, you might have time to do that today. But what about that inevitable day where your car breaks down? Five friends call you with with really you know bad problems they're having and everything goes wrong. Is your goal feasible enough to be able to do it on that day? Only do routines where you can do that because you can always do more when you got extra time. But you're going to need those days where what you're doing, what's required of you is ridiculously easy so that there's no excuse for not doing it. And then the third thing is accountability. That doesn't necessarily take the form of calling up somebody that hates you and say, hey, man, I'm going to run five miles every day so that he can you know, give you shit if you don't do it. But that can take the form of anything like um you know, setting an appointment with somebody else in the morning to help you get out of bed or whatever it may be, just doing something so that you're not completely relying on your ability to keep you accountable because we have a remarkable capacity to forgive ourselves when we don't do the things that we really believe in. So find a way to make it, you know, uh, externally connected to, to things that other people will notice. Yeah. And I would say uh, for me, I've found the best way to start a routine is the small, simple secret swap. You like that, TK? Oh, dude, man, that's the small, simple secret swap. That's dope. So so what I mean is, uh, like TK said, pick something small, um, not small in its long-term effects or small in its ambition, but small enough so that I love the way you put it, TK, you can do it on your worst day. Simple, it can't have all sorts of tentacles and arms and branches and contingencies and if-then statements, just a simple routine. Secret? I want to start the routine for just myself and get five or 10 reps under my belt where I'm doing it every day or every week or whatever my thing is before I tell anybody about it, except for maybe someone that might help keep me accountable because I feel like that is a better way to guard yourself against the tendency to do routines just for the signaling value and the quick hit you get when people say, wow, that's really cool. And if you announce them ahead of time, you know, and then maybe you you might find out through experimentation that you want to change it a little bit. So I keep it secret for a little while and only talk about it after I've done it. Hey, I've been meditating for the last two weeks and here's what I found. Um, And then finally swap because I want to keep things simple. If I'm going to start a new routine, I try as much as possible to swap out an old routine. I don't want to just keep adding routines. I want to keep as few as possible. Sometimes that can be a combination. Like, okay, I'm going to listen to a, you know, a podcast every morning and I'm going to make some coffee by hand or something. How about I do those at the same time? But in the very least combined, but usually a swap. Um, okay, I'm going to stop doing this for a month and I'm going to try this. And then it's almost like you can A-B test them. So small, simple secret swap. Uh, Maxine Cox, do you see any viable alternatives to STEM degrees, biology, engineering in the future? For entrepreneurship and business, a degree is a waste of time and money, damn straight, but our science is a different story. We've had a a variation on this question at least one other time. Um, Maxine, I would say, yeah, 
There are viable alternatives now, and I think those are only going to increase in the future. I think if you are really interested in biology, engineering, one of those things, first you have to really get to know like what kind of interest do you have. If you want to get hired at a large firm as an engineer, and you know for sure that's really going to bring you what you want in life, and that company requires an engineering degree, and you think it's worth it, well then go get it. And there are certainly for, you know, some of the sciences, maybe some of the, maybe you want to be a PhD who's researching something and you know that access to the laboratories, whatever requires you to go through the academic thing. If that's a requirement given the, given the current um, institutional setting and you know, that's the thing you love, go for it. But I think if what you really love is just the raw subject itself, engineering, biology, doing new things in those areas, don't limit yourself to following the pre-tracked conveyor belt into those disciplines, outsiders are most likely to innovate. And if you think of it in the abstract, if you sort of start from scratch, you know, this is kind of what people always say about what Tesla did with the car. And I'm not a fan of all their subsidies and all this garbage, but saying let's, we don't have all these legacy costs. We don't have this legacy of factories that are built in a certain way where car building has been done the same way for 50 years. We get to start with a blank slate and say, if you were going to build a car today, given everything we know and the technology we have, how would you do it? And I think freeing yourself from that pre-existing conveyor belt is a really powerful way um, to, to think of new approaches. What do I, I want to do cool things in engineering and biology. If I was just starting from scratch with all the technology, all the information, everything available to me today, how would I do that? And there might be some awesome ways to do that completely without going through the typical degree process. In fact, I think those who have the biggest advantage will be the ones who figure out creative new ways to do it. Uh, okay, next question, because TK just told me he has nothing to add to that question. I read his mind. Wanda Lowe, what's an invention that you think should exist, but you don't know how to make or how it would work? What tools are you missing? I'll go super quick and then TK, you take it. Uh, a low earth orbit hotel and resort. Uh, I want one of those to exist. I would love to make it work. I know nothing about any of the technology involved, but I'm obsessed with space and especially space tourism. TK? Uh, Uber for, for flying. And, and I mean that locally. Like, I want to be able to take a helicopter over LA traffic and get somewhere that's only 10 miles away in the 10 minutes it should be rather than the hour and a half that it actually is. Mm. Caitlin Scheel asks, Least favorite thinker, philosopher, and or economist. Oh, man. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be like, this is the absolute least, but I'll give you a couple. Um, Thomas Hobbes, uh, I think his ideas are probably the most fundamental to all of the errors in the social sciences. <laughs> um, I think at bottom of almost every incorrect way of looking at institutions, uh, states, human nature, is this Hobbesian assumption that life in a state of nature without some giant Leviathan wielding all the control is nasty, brutish, and short in a war of all against all. I think every bit of theory and <clears throat> good logical theory and history completely contradicts that, but people have so accepted that Hobbesian assumption that it poisons all the social sciences. Great essay on this is Poking Hobbes in the Eye by Peter Leeson, who's been a guest on this podcast. There are a couple others real quick that I'll throw out that people people often say, even people who disagree with them, well, you got to read them firsthand and see that they really do have some good stuff as well. Uh, Marx, I've read uh, 
Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, and I don't think there's really anything in there that makes me say, wow, Marx is a compelling thinker. Um, I have a lot of very smart friends who I agree with philosophically that that say that there's stuff there, but I haven't seen it. Rousseau, I don't care for Rousseau at all either. Uh, and Keynes, if you can make a pre, pre-general theory, Keynes's stuff on the, the Treaty of uh, uh, the Economic Consequences of the Peace and stuff, he had some good stuff. But if you can make sense of the general theory, um, then I think you're lying because you can't make sense of the general theory. It's completely senseless. <laughs> TK? Yeah. Um, man, this is a really tough one for me because I, I really don't spend a lot of time reading people that I don't really like. And I, and, I, and I tend to only look for stuff that I like. But if I had to choose, maybe I'll go in. Maybe I'll go in on Richard Dawkins um, because I think the guy is brilliant and has made a lot of contributions to scientific literacy. But in many ways, he's done as much damage because of the obnoxious, uh, uncharitable reaction that he tends to have to anybody that is scientifically illiterate, to anyone that disagrees with his ideas or to anyone who um, who has religious beliefs or anything along those lines. And it's not just that he, you know, talks in a condescending tone. But I think it actually affects the quality of many of his arguments, the quality of much of his writing, the quality of much of his presentation. It pervades through a lot of his external brand. And he's been sort of called on this by people like Sam Harris and Neil deGrasse Tyson at various times. Um, and I, I think I think he's just one of those guys who has been so sort of unnecessarily obnoxious because I'm not part of the cult of being polite. But he's just been so unnecessarily obnoxious that, that in many ways he's turned a lot of people off from um, – learning the sorts of things that that he knows which is objectively valuable valuable for people to know so that would be the guy i pick uh so karen morehouse my mother <laughs> asks on your on your wall by the way hello, <laughs> hello isaac do you remember me yes mom i remember you it hasn't been that long since we talked Jeez. um dude dude should, should we tell this story or save it for future episodes since we're, we're talking about your mom it's pretty hilarious oh oh you gotta tell it then you can't just tease <laughs> i think so, i know the story you're gonna tell but i'm not sure go ahead yeah 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 so <laughs> <laughs> so isaac and i isaac and i were this hanging out better one time. than the suge knight story from last week <laughs> yeah 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 so i i, I brought a, a friend over isaac's place isaac was hanging out at his mom's place and i think i we still lived there i was like 18 or something Maybe so. Maybe, Maybe not. so. I don't know. You, you've always kind of been like timelessly 18 for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> just as I've been timelessly 35 I'm to your Benjamin sister. Benjamin Button. I'm getting younger. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I brought one of my friends over to, to Isaac's place and his mom's there and we're just all hanging out and, and we leave. And, uh, and my buddy says, uh, he goes, yeah, man. He goes, uh, Isaac's mom. But you got to do the look- accent. You got to do the accent. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Your okay. buddy is from from uh, Uganda. No, no, he's from Z- Zambia. Oh, and, okay. uh, sorry. It's, it's, it's my it's my boy Robbie. Shout out Robbie if you're listening. He says, uh, "Hey man," he goes, uh, he goes, Isaac's mother. She looks good. And I, and I go, "Yeah man, yeah, she's cool." And uh, you know, I try to like deflect, like, "Yeah man, she's cool," you know, down to earth and everything. And he's like, "No, no, no, man." He's like, "She looks good." You know what I mean? Like, she looks good. <laughs> And I, and I said, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, he goes, no, man, I mean, like, real good. And I'm like, yeah, man. 
And then I don't know what to say at this point. Like, I agree with you two times already. And then he's like, no, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be awkward, but she looks good. And I'm like, dude, it's awkward now. It's awkward now. <laughs> oh, man. So, I, I, so, love, I love Robbie. He, he was the king of just saying what he thought, but it always came off like sort of awkward. <laughs> One day I'm going to write a, write a song. Isaac's mom got it going on. <laughs> you look real good, Karen Morehouse. <laughs> we remember you, Karen. How can we forget? You look good. <laughs> so uh, Matt Needham asks, Best and worst parts of all working remotely in Praxis. And then Connor Jeffers also asked, how do you manage to work effectively while being geographically and time zone split? Um, TK, why don't you go first, man? What's it like for you out there on the West Coast? Yep. So the, the best part is that I like to work alone and I like to work in large blocks of time where I can just do me and focus on my thing. And I, I, I don't have to worry about the way that I look or the way that I'm behaving for other people. So I love the fact that I'm out here on the West Coast by myself, alone in my apartment, being the hermit that I've always wanted to be. And now that I'm growing old, I have the permission to be. Um, that's the best part. The The worst part is there, um, I would say two things. One, just just getting up every day and leaving where you live to go be around other people. I think there's something valuable about that that I can't quite put my finger on, but I but I miss, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of made me healthier and happier in ways that I currently lack or that I have to compensate for by adding rituals to my life, like leaving my apartment, taking a walk and getting sunlight and stuff and not being a vampire. But, but I think the other thing is by not being present with the team, we have to sort of do extra work to communicate with each other. When if we were around each other in a common location, we would just see what everybody else is working on. And I think it's a lot easier to just be inspired and be confident when you know where everyone's at without having to talk about it and announce it. But in some ways, like you, Isaac, you are your your updates, right? Like you are your Vox messages to me. You are your emails to me. And although I know that there is so much more to what you do on a daily basis, you kind of get reduced to just what you say in those moments where you announce things publicly. And I think there's something, something that you kind of lose there that I, that I do somewhat miss. Yeah. I would say that the best parts are all of it. <laughs> I, I absolutely <laughs> love it. I worked remotely, uh, most of the time for the previous almost 10 years. Um, <clears throat> and I love it. I think it makes us the best communicating team I've ever seen. Because you cannot slack and uh, I don't mean slack as in use the tool slack because we use that all the time. You cannot make assumptions. You cannot fall back on the easy thing. You cannot let things fester or say, oh, yeah, it's kind of weird that so-and-so It's kind of annoying that they've been doing this. I'll, I'll talk with them sometime, you know, next week or I'll pull them aside and we'll grab coffee or whatever. You can't you can't afford to do that. So you have to be on top of everything. Our team's communication is absolutely stellar. And I've worked in a lot of environments and people assume communication is going to be better in office. I think that's false. I think a well-functioning remote team has the best communication of any team on the planet because they have to, or they could not do it. Um, so that is really powerful. That's really, um, I think really exciting. And I, I love the fact that we're sort of breaking the rules. I always want to have my cake and eat it too. Whenever someone says, 
you have to choose this or this. I always want to be the first one in history to do both and say, no, I don't have to choose. I want both. And there's this idea, especially with a startup, that you've got to all be in the same broom closet together, getting this thing going, whatever. And remote work, you know, it's fine for small timey stuff, but you can't really grow something. I always want to challenge that. I want to figure it out. I want to crack the code. And we have done that very successfully in this first three years um, almost. And it has been amazing the fluidity with which we've done it. Yeah, we have hiccups and bumps, but I always think it gets over. It's like it's like with college. If you drop out and you have hard times in life, everyone will say, oh, told you, you should have gone to college. But if you finish college and have hard times in life, no one will say, oh yeah, it's college's fault. It's like that with remote work. Any challenges, workplace challenges, communications challenges, personality challenges, whatever, people will say, yeah, it's, it's working remote, man. It's such a drain. But they don't say that about working in the office. Nobody ever says, yeah, all working together in the office environment. That's the reason why people sit at their desks and don't get much done because they're all chatting. And the, the fact that we're all in the office makes us feel like we're getting work done. The fact that we all spend an hour and a half commuting makes us feel like we worked another hour and a half, but we really didn't do much. People don't do that. And I think that's true. I've worked at places where people have said, oh, oh, I can't, I can't get anything done remotely. I doubt that. I've never met someone who says they can't get work done remotely who is actually getting work done in the office. They're not. They're just in the office. They're, <laughs> they're just inefficient workers, period. They just aren't good at getting stuff done, period. If you can't get work done unless you're physically in a room with a bunch of people, then I question your work habits and workability anyway. Um, so I just think it forces you to maintain those habits. It forces you to be deliberate. It's like moving to a new town without a prefabricated social life. You're forced to be deliberate in creating a social life. TK talked about those habits and routines. He's better, in my opinion, because he can't just outsource his socialization and energy to showing up in the office every day and just letting it happen. He has to deliberately choose to interact with other people, to give himself reasons to walk outside every day, to, to be deliberate. So I think it's made us better. Now, worst parts, are there downsides? Are there things that are difficult? Um, yeah, I mean, to me, the worst part is as we grow and we're growing now and the team is going to have to grow, um, you know, relatively soon here and, and it's going to have to grow a lot as we continue to, to scale up. There is a point at which I don't know that you can continue to do that. A, a core team of five people who are all sort of leadership team members, founding team members, we've done a phenomenal job and all of our personalities work well in this way. If we have 10, 20, 30 employees plus, there are just going to be a lot of people who you can't do that. I think then it becomes unmanageable. And so that's something I know is probably going to have to happen um, at some point here in our growth and learning how to do that with the temperament and the, and the rapport that we've developed um, is going to be a challenge. And as to Connor's question, how do you manage to work effectively being geographically in time zone split? We are ridiculous communicators. Um, and I think that's that's been the key for us. So between we use Slack, we use Voxer, uh, email, not as much anymore. But um, you know, even even just our different sort of forward-facing stuff on social media, we communicate 24/7. And sometimes, you know, you wake up in the morning and you have a ton of Slack messages or whatever. It's going 24/7. And, and if you're not really good at regulating your time and and not letting it stress you out, um, it could. But the constant communication that we have. And we're all just constantly doing stuff. I mean, we all just live and breathe Praxis. And so to talk is to talk about Praxis, basically. So we communicate all the time and are sort of on the same wavelength um, 
with that stuff. So it has worked incredibly well so far. In fact, I would argue we are more effective. When we get together for a short period of time, three, four days, we can do some amazing stuff all in the same room. But by the end of it, we're already sort of starting to get annoyed with each other because we all have our individual habits and routines. And we all kind of like when it's like, okay, we have to brainstorm and do some stuff. That's all cool. And it's fun to get to hang out and everything. But like when real work has to be done, all of us are so accustomed to like, okay, just let me retreat to my office alone to really put the hammer down and focus. And I would have a hard time doing focus work uh, with a lot of people around. So um, we'll see how we deal with this as we grow. Great question. DK, the next question, um, I want you to take this one. Nate Baker, your thoughts on the calcification of the mind at age 25, do you get set in your ways? Is it harder to change your mind around this age? Also along this line, are your 20s the defining decade of your life that can make or break your career? All right, so scientific arguments about neuroplasticity aside, I don't think that it's intrinsically more difficult when you're 25 or older to add novelty to your life and to change your beliefs. I think what happens, though, is there are significant lifestyle changes that begin to happen around that age for most people that make it a little bit more difficult to access the kinds of experiences that can lead to these sorts of changes. So around 25 is when most people begin to do things like either get married or begin to have children or begin to settle down into careers and so forth, and you just get busier. You tend to have less time. So the concept that I like to use to refer to your early 20s and your late teens is the concept of time billionaires. Basically, at that age, you are a time billionaire. You have as much time as you're ever going to have. Now, you may be busy in your mind, and I give you the right to say that all you want, but it's only going to get busier from here on out as you begin to add more external obligations like family or the responsibilities that come with leadership and things along those lines. So, I mean, when I was maybe, you know, 20, 21, I was a time billionaire in the sense that I could easily, at the drop of a dime, pull an all-nighter or stay up till four in the morning and just read as much as I wanted. I mean, I felt like I was pretty invincible. I could do whatever I wanted just because I had an almost limitless supply of energy. Whereas now, it's just much more difficult to be able to stay up like that or to be able to find that time, being able to read and find an hour alone where I can do that. It's just much more rare. So I do think your 20s are the defining decade of your life that can make or break your career, but not because there are less opportunities when you're 30, but just because at that stage, the amount of energy and time you're going to have, freedom you're going to have to experiment without having to worry about how this affects family members and things like that. It's just as high as it's ever going to be. And I, I encourage you to take full advantage of it. But not because of fear that, you know, there's going to come an age where you can't do creative stuff anymore. I don't think that you have to calcify at all. In fact, I think you can continue to get more creative, more open minded as you go. And I don't think the 20s are your defining decade of life that will make or break your career. But I do think there is a the, the principle of compounding interest. It works for personal growth and development as well. Mental, spiritual, emotional, physical also, just like it does with, with money. And so in some ways you could say, yeah, that your 20s are the defining decade because of that compounding effect. You know, you see this all the time when people tell you, you know, if you had money earning 6% interest and you were putting in 100 bucks a month, you know, because of the compounding effect, every year that you start earlier, 
the payoff 30 years down the road is going to be ridiculously many multiples more for every tiny bit of time and money you do early on. And so in some ways, yeah, those 20s, those are those times that the payoffs, the earlier you can start investing in your own curiosity and learning and open-mindedness, the higher the payoff is going to be at the end, but it goes in both ways. So if you do nothing, let's say you you lose 1% of open-mindedness a year, right? That's going to compound as well. And you're going to get more and more set in your raise and it's going to take a steep dive all of a sudden. That, that negative growth curve, so to speak, is going to look pretty flat for a while and then it's going to start to compound and it's just going to, it's just going to dive down and you will get more set in your ways. Conversely, if you add 1% to your curiosity, open-mindedness, stretch your mind, do things that make you think in different ways that are uncomfortable, just like with your muscles, unlike your muscles, I don't think your mind ages in the same way. Maybe once it gets to 60, 70, 80, and you start hitting maybe things like degenerative, you know, Alzheimer's, whatever. But I think as long as you're keeping it active, I mean, and there are all these studies about one, as soon as you retire, retirement is like the, the most dangerous, um, you know, thing you can do because you'll die right away because <laughs> your mind's not active. You keep that mind active and you add to it, it will have the, the compounding effect as well. And I think you can actually get more energetic mentally, more open-minded, more flexible. You can create more neuro pathways. You can actually develop the habit of breaking habits of thought. You can actually develop a habit of creating new habits of new neural networks and connections. And I've seen this, it's rare, but I've seen people who just seem to get more curious, more interesting, more open-minded the more they go because they're relentless about it. So I think it's a compounding effect that can go in either direction. Dan Sanchez, do you think preoccupation with electoral politics hampers the ability of the individual to leave, to live free? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. I like it. That was a good one. An easy one. Um, You got a little time to stick on a a little longer about a topic you mentioned to me earlier. Let's do it, man. All right. Let's go a little long today. You mentioned to me, well, you asked me the other day if I knew what the Mandela effect was. And uh, I did. From what I recall, it's the phenomenon that Tons of people, huge numbers of people, a majority of people when you pull them or whatever, remember Nelson Mandela dying when he hadn't actually died. And right. I don't remember what, what it was you asked me about that, but that that's what it is, at least how I remember it. What is it that's got you interested in this? So it's, it's conventionally defined as when a ton of people misremember, right? Which kind of builds into the definition of, of the Mandela effect the answer to the question I'm going to ask. But there are other instances, some of them just completely hilarious, some of them that make you go, huh, wait a minute, I do remember it that way. Others that make you say, "Eh, all right, I remember it that way, but it's no big deal, I was probably wrong anyway. I do misremember things sometimes. But it's interesting because there there are lots of different examples of Mandela effects coming up. If you go on Twitter and you hashtag Mandela effect, go on Facebook and hashtag it, There are lots of people giving examples and they're leading to all sorts of interesting debates about is there some sort of conspiracy? Is someone manipulating the data? But if they were, how could they do it? There are people that are even going as far as saying time travelers are coming back and manipulating or there are parallel universes and and we've sort of shifted realities. This is how far it's gone. So let let me give a few examples of of some Mandela effect, you know, kind of – controversies or debates that, that that arise out of pop culture that most people will remember. So let's take a little little quiz. 
there was a book we read when we were children about um, a bunch of a family of bears and they would teach moral lessons. You, you know the name of that book? Yeah, Berenstain Bears. Yep. Um, most of us remember it as Berenstain Bears or some people would say Berenstein or Berenstein. Um, but it's actually spelled with an A like Berenstain Bears. And you can Google it. You won't find Berenstein or Berenstein. It's with an A. And a lot of people say, no, 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 no. I swear. I know. Because, you know, people will say things like I I would look at that book and I would wonder if it's pronounced Stein or Steen. And I never would have asked myself that if I saw Stain. OK, so let, 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 let's give a second one um, in Snow White, the queen um wants to know who the most beautiful person in the world is and so and so she goes to uh she walks up to something and she poses a question what is that question mirror mirror on the wall who is the most beautiful of all or something like that yeah who's the fairest of them all yeah fairest that, of them all that's right yeah uh, that's that's how most of us remember it but the actual line is magic mirror on the wall who's the fairest of them all um, so once again, Mandela effect, most people remember it a different way. Um, another example is Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner, baseball movie. There's a voice that speaks to him about doing something because something else will happen as a result of him doing this. If you do this, this will follow. Do you remember that line? Very famous line. If you build it, they will come. That's how most of us remember it, right? I mean, if you Google that phrase, you will see a lot of blog posts and sermons and motivational lessons that are built around that phrase, if you build it, they will come. The actual line is, if you build it, he will come. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I could go on giving a bunch of examples of this. Now, you can listen to that and you can say, all right, TK, I, like most people, remember it in the same way Isaac does, but clearly, if Wikipedia and all of the labels and all of the search results from Google Images says that it's Baron Stain, or if you build it, he will come, or it's magic mirror on the wall, then I must have been wrong. And the debate is actually quite a lively debate, and, and, and there's a pretty big divide, and I think it raises some very interesting philosophical questions about how far should we go with trusting our own perception of reality versus some sort of external authority. Clearly there are moments where you should go with your gut. You should go with what you genuinely know you have experienced. On the other hand, there are moments where you might deeply believe something, but there's some sort of external standard that says you're wrong and you gotta go with that. And regardless of where you stand with the Mandela effect, it does raise this question and forces us to confront this. Is there a clear answer to that? When do we trust what external authority says? When do we go with our gut? I don't. I still don't really follow what the great practical or even philosophical <laughs> application is. So let me see yeah. here why you're so okay. interested. In. So you got a bunch of people that remember. Like I know another one people use is, uh, you know, Luke, I am your father. And really Vader says like, no, I am your father or something like that. But it's it's been compacted. Because there's all these other like funny movies and spoofs where people say, Luke, I am right, your right. father or whatever. And so yeah, we just I think that of, was actually easy to explain. Yeah, that was yeah, kind of easy. But I think all of them are relatively easy to explain. But even if they're not, I guess what's the big 
aha moment here. Like, oh, sometimes we're really sure we remember something one way, but all of these sort of official documentation says it happened the other way. What is, are you, are you asking a question about, are you questioning the value of submitting to the official documentation instead of going with our own subjective experience or memory? Um, what, what, I don't know, I guess where, where are we going with this? Yeah. So the, the debate arises from Make this more interesting to me. I, <laughs> I demand to be entertained. Man, you're not interested in the Berenstein Bears? <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is the most important stuff going on. So, I mean, this takes us into fringe uh, territory. So let me just go ahead and get fringe. The reason there is a debate is precisely because there are, there are so many people that feel so strongly about the way they remember it that they are considering revising their understanding of how reality works in order to explain what they know they remember. I know I remember it, dude. I know I remember it as Berenstein. I know I remember it as if you build it, they will come. And I know my memory isn't wrong. Therefore, there must have been something. There's a glitch in the matrix. So there, there are some who would say that we live in a holographic reality. We live in a reality where the picture of the universe as is, the picture that is presented to us is a picture that is in many ways manipulated and manufactured, a picture that is not entirely true. And glitches in the matrix like this provide evidence for that. Um, there are people who invoke um, CERN or CERN and say that, you know, the use of this device may have resorted in some distortions in reality. That, is, is that like the, the particle accelerator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there are some people say the use of that, the use of that particle accelerator may have re resulted in some distortions of reality. They, they smashed two protons together and the E became an A in Berenstain. <laughs> right, right. It changed all the first <laughs> no, but time. I think, I think I get what's intriguing to you about this now. A little, so this makes me think about, and we've talked about this a lot with like horror movies and things, this concept of an insane person or a mentally ill person or someone who is incorrect, that are having delusions and they're just wrong because something they firmly believe, even if every other aspect of them seems normal, if they insist that, you know, they saw something that no other objective measurable criteria can confirm, we assume that they're like insane and maybe even institutionalize them and whatever. And so there's this danger. If you have had any kind of experience or you have any kind of belief or, or observance or whatever, that's well outside of the norm. The fear of being labeled insane and possibly being institutionalized or having your career ruined will keep you from ever wanting to say something about that, which that kind of culture on the one hand, that's, you know, that's useful because it's sort of puts a high cost on just saying random crazy things and making it so that basically, you know, that no one can really rely on anything because everybody's always making crazy claims. It puts a high cost on out of the norm claims, but maybe it puts too high a cost on it. Maybe the fact that you can, uh, and, and getting the state involved with their definition of what mental illness is and truly being able to take away all of your rights and institutionalize you, the fear level is so high that there's a lot of people who have had really interesting uh, experiences or who have maybe started to, to understand aspects of reality that are harder to measure, but that may have some truth in them or whatever. But the cost is so high of being a weirdo and a fringe person that 
we are maybe losing access to some of that information. And, and sometimes, um, you know, we, we like to use Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is usually the best. And I know that's sort of a crude version of it, um, but that's how most people think of it. But that's, we don't always use that. Sometimes we will bend over backwards to find a really complicated answer because the simplest explanation is just too weird and abnormal. And we confuse uh, common for simple. And a great example is in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know what I'm talking about when, when Lucy first goes into the wardrobe and she claims that she's been in this wardrobe and this explains the lost time and there was a fawn and all this other stuff. And she's like crying and like, suffering a great deal because of this belief where if she was just pretending she could just stop saying she believed it and she wouldn't have to suffer at all. But for some reason she's willing to suffer and it explains missing time and it explains a couple other things. And in many ways, her story about this magical wardrobe being true is the simplest explanation for to stick with Occam's razor because it explains everything the most neatly. And it especially explains why she would be willing to suffer and you know be all emotionally distraught if if it was a story she was making up and she knew she was making it up why would she do this and the kids are all troubled by this and they ask this old professor and he's like you know have you ever considered the fact that she's telling the truth and they're like well that would be crazy and he's like well is she somebody that's known to lie no not generally what you know what's crazier someone being completely out of character for themselves and suffering for something that they know to be a lie and having to explain why time was missing, whatever else, that's actually, that both might be improbable, but one's actually less probable. It's just that the other one is so uncommon that we tend to dismiss it out of hand. So, so are you sort of getting at this, like, maybe we ought to not be so quick to defer to the known and the common and be a little more open to our own subjective experience when it comes to discovering truth? That's absolutely what I'm getting at. So I'm not telling you that the Berenstain, Berenstein debate is objectively important or that you should care. I'm not even saying that the people who explain the Mandela effect by invoking conspiracy theories are right. Um, but I am saying the following two things that number one, sometimes crazy theories turn out to be true. Okay. And number two, if a crazy theory were true, it's important to have a way of knowing if you were wrong. And I suspect that we don't have that as much as we think that our epistemologies are shaped in a way that often makes it impossible for us to ever recognize a crazy theory as true. So take, for instance, if you're a person who doesn't believe in ghosts, right? Like, I don't believe in ghosts. Why not? Because I just think that's irrational. Ghosts don't exist. OK, if you were to see a ghost, does your epistemology actually permit you? to say that you saw a ghost. I mean, just suppose hypothetically, as crazy as it is, that you were wrong and that ghosts actually exist and you saw a ghost. Is the world set up in such a way that you could actually even admit that without being locked up in an asylum? I'm not sure if it is. And if you saw that, wouldn't you be compelled by your non-belief in ghosts to explain it in another way, in another way, no matter what that explanation is? I mean, anything except that, right? So this is what I call, I have a term for this, I call it horror movie epistemology, because you see this played out in horror movies all the time. My favorite example of this is, in, is, is Child's Play, and I, I, you know, we've talked about this before, where 
there's a little doll that's trying to possess a boy and the doll moves and talks and hurts the little boy whenever no one's around. But as soon as people walk into the room, the doll, you know, goes limp like it's, you know, just, a, you know, a toy. Um, so there's one moment where the boy is in his room. He's on the top floor. There are no windows in the room and the doll is laying on top of him doing some kind of incantation. And it's got him tied up by all fours. And, and, and he, the boy is screaming. His family runs into the room and they see this lifeless doll laying on top of him and they immediately begin to chastise the boy for tying himself up on all fours. And they completely disregard the fact that it's physically impossible for this boy to have done that to himself. But anything before believing that a doll could yeah. talk, that a no, doll I, could come alive. It, it reminds me of the, the conversation we had a few weeks back about language and the question of whether how we perceive reality, language is not just an expression of what we perceive, but language can also shape and limit, or in other cases, expand what we are able to perceive. So I wonder if it's even possible in some, if we don't have a linguistic category for something, uh, words, phrases, um, which shape our concepts, because we tend to think in, in words um, past a very young age. If we don't have a language for something, we actually may not be able to see it or perceive it at all. And, you know, maybe, may, and you've seen these like sort of illusion tricks or whatever, where, you know, if, if someone is talking about a certain word and you're looking at images flash by, like you'll see that image, but you won't see, you know, maybe you'll see a carrot because people have been talking about carrots or the color orange, but like you won't see an apple or some, or something completely unrelated because you have been thinking about something else. I wonder, you know, Okay, so you see a ghost. Not only do you do you even have a way, given your your worldview, to do anything about that, or do you just have to pretend it didn't happen? But I wonder how many things we just don't see, or concepts we don't encounter, because we are limited by the the words that we've become attached to and the labels that we have, and they actually prevent us from seeing certain things altogether or experiencing them. Oh, I, I wonder that too. I think that's super interesting, man. Uh, you know, one 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 last thing I'll throw out there, you know, is um, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about aliens and he was saying, why do these people who who say they're abducted by aliens? Why is it always some uneducated person who was in a field and by themselves and they never have any evidence? You know, just next time an alien grabs you, he says, I, I want you to do this next time you're, you find yourself in a spaceship or what have you just grab something, anything any little piece of their technology and just bring it with you. Because once we see that, we can have some evidence. And, and I remember thinking, even though he was kind of being tongue in cheek and that was funny, I remember thinking, I don't know, Neil. I don't know if our worldview would permit us to accept that as evidence, because I know if I saw that, I would just be convinced that there's probably some genius like Tesla on this planet that we don't know about who created something like that. And we need to find that guy, you know, but but more often than not, the anything but aliens, anything but what I've been conditioned to look at as crazy must be the answer. And we just don't have the language, the linguistic or the conceptual apparatus to make sense of, of things that we've been sort of that, programmed to believe are impossible. That's a good question that usually believers in whatever the predominant view is, whether it's a scientific theory, a political or economic theory, uh, cosmological theory or theory of, you know, whether alien life exists, et cetera. The, the, the believers in sort of the dominant prevailing narrative 
they tend to use this question a lot on sort of fringe people who have spiritual or mystical or alien conspiracy, whatever. They use the question of, you know, oh, well, you're such a conspiracy theorist. Even if we prove to you that the moon landing was real, you're going to find some new way to say, no, the proof was false, whatever. And they'll say the question, is there anything you could be presented with? Is there any evidence you could be presented with that would make you abandon your fringe belief? And that's a good question to ask. But I think we forget Almost nobody asks that of the prevailing beliefs about things. Again, whether it's social beliefs, whether it's beliefs about the, the goodness of school or college, economic political beliefs, or scientific beliefs about, you know, the ability to travel faster than light or alien, you know, alien, intelligent alien life. Ask yourself from those prevailing, those common dominant beliefs, is there anything anyone could do that would prove to you that, you know, is there any, any evidence someone could produce that would prove to you or definitively change your mind that aliens are abducting people or something like that. And you don't have to even, that doesn't, you don't have to say, oh, okay, I'm willing to believe in alien abductions. But if there's literally nothing, and in many cases, I don't think there is, if there's no evidence that would possibly ever change your mind, then it's no longer a belief based on evidence. It's just a belief based on a worldview that you need to be true for some psychological reason. And I think that's dangerous. And even though the prevailing narrative is probably right the vast majority of the time, it's like that Chuck Klosterman book we talked about, What If, what if We're Wrong. There's a small enough percentage of those fringe beliefs somewhere for every 1,000 crazy fringe conspiracy theorists, one of them is right. And you don't know which one. You can't know which one. And so if you have a position where there's no amount of evidence from any of them that could ever make you change your belief, no amount of YouTube documentations of whatever, a UFO or, you know, some such, or someone showing a, this was a, this was physically, I grabbed it from the spaceship. Like you said, like, what would be your first reaction would be, no, that's not true. Are you even capable of allowing for it to be true in any of those cases? Um, I think that's an important question to ask. And again, it doesn't mean you just have to assume that like all conspiracy theories are true. No, almost all of them are untrue. But somewhere in there, there's always one thing that's true and it's hidden with all the crazies and you don't know which one it is. So it behooves you to have some some humility and be willing to say, is there some amount of, if I'm claiming, now if I'm, if I'm claiming my belief is purely based on a priori logic, like a, a social theory or whatever, or that two plus two is four, there's no evidence that can disprove that to me if that's a prioristic. But if I have a belief that I claim is based on evidence, I need to, t- to ask myself if it really is. Is there any evidence? What evidence would it take to make me change that belief? And a great number of times, there isn't any because it really isn't based on evidence. And that's okay if we're honest about, <laughs> honest with ourselves about it. TK, yeah, this has been... If, 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 go yeah. ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, 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 let, 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 yeah, let, let me tie it up just in case anybody missed it. This is why I find the Mandela effect interesting. The question that it forced me to ask is not, are time travelers distorting our past? The question it forced me to ask was, is there enough room in my worldview to even recognize it if one of these crazy theories were true? Yeah, I'm rational just like everybody else. I don't believe this silly stuff. Wink, wink. But if it were true, could I notice? And, you know, in a, in a belief that's empirically hell is also empirically falsifiable. What would it take to cause you to change, to revise, to let go of your beliefs? A question worth asking, man. That's all. That's the lesson for the day. And it's only a step removed from the the tendency to say you know if there is no if there's nothing that i experience subjectively or feel in my gut whether moral or uh you know a belief about the the world um if there if there's nothing i could experience that i would be willing to side with over all the experts in the world 
then that's kind of a dangerous position. The Milgram experiments are famous where, you know, someone in a lab coat says, go ahead and electrocute this person and, you know, do it all the way up until it's killing the person. Even though it wasn't killing them, they were actors. The vast majority of people just kept doing it because they were so willing to assume, well, he's the expert. He's got to know what's good. I'm just, I've got these gut feelings, but those are more subject to error than the weight of all this science and lab coats and all this other stuff, all the things that symbolize truth. Oh, Wikipedia and official this and that, that's always correct, more correct than my gut. That can lead you to potentially very dark and dangerous places. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to go and embrace every conspiracy theory, but I think it it, it behooves you to be humble. Um, TK, what's a recommendation for this week? Recommendation for this week, I am going to go with uh, a little book called Beyond the Blame Game. Uh, you know, you know, I love my, my self help stuff. the uh, The name of the author is Carl Alasco. It also is and, alliterative uh, and it rhymes. So, <laughs> but it, it's freeing yourself from the most toxic form of emotional bullshit. Great book for anybody out there that's just looking to take greater charge of their lives and get beyond putting their stuff off on other people. So, since we talked about language perception, weird stuff. I'm going to go with one. This is a really fascinating book. It's like a fiction, dreamy narrative thing, but it's also ties into a lot of sort of nonfiction um, metaphysics and stuff. It's called, I think Phi is how you pronounce it. Phi or Phi. I wasn't, I wasn't in a fraternity, so I don't know how to pronounce the Greek letters, but P-H-I is how you spell it. I believe it's Phi. Phi. That's what I thought. It is super weird, super fascinating. Um, really cool book. Actually, I need to, I'm going to have to pick that book up again now that I think about it. All right, man. This was awesome. Until next week. Until next week. Peace.